Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Will I try to get this on? Uh-oh. All right, Hebrews chapter 10, if you would. And uh, what we'll do this morning here is we'll go ahead and read through uh, chapter 10, verses, verse 19, through the uh, end of the chapter. And I'll put this here just in case. I won't even review the three main P's and all that this morning, taking for granted that uh, you remember those. We'll find out again later, not today, but another time. If you do, um, I, wanna th- I want you to think about something while we read this, okay, besides what the passage is saying. But, all right, when you study the Bible, all right, any given portion of the Bible that you're studying, it's important to properly understand it, right? I mean, that's important. But then, besides that particular context that you're looking at, it's also very important to understand how that piece, if you want to say, fits into the bigger picture as well. Both are obviously important. And um, without, without understanding and being able to come to the right conclusions on, you know, the specific parts, obviously you won't have the right big picture, but, so, but, but there, you know, uh, all of that's important. And so that's, that's uh, I was thinking about that in light of what we're trying to do with the book of Hebrews is, is really both of those, I mean... Obviously, we don't have time to, to go into all the details of everything throughout the book, okay? I mean, we'd, we'd, we'd spend a very long time. Um, but hopefully, we've, we've focused on some of the, the more important things and, and so on. And if perhaps there's something that uh, we seem to have skipped over and you might have a question about, feel free to slip me a note. We'll try to make sure that we, we cover it in that, but I'm also trying to get you to see the big picture in it as well, all right? And, uh, you know, a book, of course, each book of the Bible has a big picture of that book, but then, of course, then that book fits into the bigger picture yet of the whole Bible, and so all of, all of that's important, but so keep in mind what we've seen so far in the book of Hebrews, which we did some review last week to try to reiterate that and of course the two weeks ago before that we had done uh, focused on just reviewing but um, but keep those things in mind as we read the rest of this chapter we we only got a certain uh, part into this last week so I want to read the entire rest of this chapter I'll ask uh, Pastor Brinker to start we'll just let you guys go around the room I'll I'll uh, stay out of the reading for right now and uh, then we'll have a word of prayer following that, and then we'll jump into this particular portion. All right, so 19, yes. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us 
through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. Let us draw near with true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. But in certain fearful looking or of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done, done despite unto the Spirit of grace. For so him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord, and again the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But call to remembrance the former days in which, after ye were illuminated, he endured a great fight of afflictions. Partly whilst you were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly whilst you became companions of them that were so used. For ye had compassion with me and my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come, and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto patience, but of them that believe in the saving of the soul. Alright, let's go ahead and pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word, and please help us this morning as we look at this portion of Hebrews, and um, uh, again, that we'd have uh, a better appreciation, not just Bible knowledge, but a better appreciation for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and it's in his name we pray, amen. All right, in this portion that you read, um, as we had mentioned last week, of course, we're, this, this begins the third major part of the book of Hebrews, the principal part, all right, which, again, uh, you know, for sake of alliteration, the principal, but really it has to do with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? Um, faith in Him, but then you'll see as the next several chapters go on how that affects different things in our lives as well. That's obviously brought into the picture here, all right? In the verses that you all just read this morning, this last half, so to speak, of chapter 10, really, uh, and, and I just called this passage a transition, a warning, and an exhortation. And, and you can see all three of those elements in this. In fact, in a, in a way, and I mentioned there's three sections here, um, and we're going to look at them in the, with following those words in those steps, but in each of these three sections, you'll see all three of those principles uh, involved as well. But so you have this passage that transitions from the great doctrinal groundwork that's been laid out in the first 
10 and a half, nine and a half chapters here talking about the person and then the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, Hebrews presents a, a unique view on the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, what he did, uh, because it focuses on his, his work in salvation from being the priest and not just the sacrifice. Obviously, that's brought into the picture here because uh, of its importance, but from his his vantage point, if you want to say, of being our high priest, that's, that's kind of unique to the book of Hebrews compared to the rest of the New Testament. But all those things being true, now you see this transition into, again, just the practical application of various things in the last several chapters here, this transitional passage. Um, and faith is really the emphasis in these passages, particularly when you get to the next chapter. That's the chapter that everybody associates the word faith with in the Bible, chapter 11. But really, this portion that you all read, chapter 11 and chapter 12 and even chapter 13, are all about faith, right? Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, just for trying to lay out how this all fits together here, all right, I'm going to give this to you quickly and then we'll go back to these verses here. But you see uh, this, again, this, this transitional passage which begins, you know, uh, in fact, you could say a key verse in this portion here, the second half of chapter 10, is verse 38. Now the just shall live by faith. If any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. That first uh, part of that verse, the just shall live by faith, that, that's a, a statement that occurs two other times in the New Testament, once in Galatians and, boy, now my mind slips uh, where it is. Um, <laughs> anyway, Romans. It's in Romans 1 and Galatians 3. And then it's a quote from the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2, I believe. I think it's about verse 15, but I can't remember the exact verse in Habakkuk right off the top of my head. That's another thing that happens when you get older. But anyway, uh, and, and things just don't stay on the top of your head, including hair. Anyway, <laughs> hair and, and thoughts and facts and things, you know. But anyway, uh, but you see the emphasis on faith there, right? And it's those that have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that are justified, they're the just ones, but also another aspect of that is those people who have been justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they live their lives, now this isn't saying that everything they do is exactly and you know totally obedient, but they live their lives in faith. That's the whole essence of the Christian life. It's a life of faith. Everything we do really is connected with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and not just what He has done, but notice in, in this passage, you also have a reiteration, it was introduced earlier in the book of Hebrews, but the fact that He is coming again, and we're to be doing what we do, looking for, trusting that promise. There's a great hope and expectation that we have that He's coming again, and things are going to be quite different when that happens. All right, uh, for us personally, and of course for the world and various things. But you have then, as he's he's driving home this point about faith. You see, then in chapter eleven, all right, that great faith chapter, you have a a, a description of faith given, and then you have 
examples of faith throughout that chapter, right? And there's reasons for those. And then you have, when you get to chapter 12, you really see the greatest. And I think sometimes when you think of, uh, as you know, some people call it the hall of faith in chapter 11, the greatest example of faith is actually cited in chapter 12 at the beginning of chapter 12. And that greatest example of faith is the Lord Jesus himself. All right. Um, but you see him presented as the great example of faith uh, and then uh, various things relating to our faith. He's the direct object of our faith. You see the direction of our faith, diligent duties of our faith, destination for our faith. Heaven's talked about in chapter 12 there as well. And then you have the fifth and final warning passage closing out chapter 12. And then you move into chapter 13 and it's basically just about living in a community of faith. Now, uh, we'll explain that more when we get to it, but you'll see personal admonitions, exhortations given, as well as ones that affect corporately a church in chapter 13. And again, we'll, we'll get to all that, and then there's some closing uh, words, basically from the writer of Hebrews, which, again, we, we can't say for certain who it is, but whoever it is, he knew the people he was writing to, and the people that w were the recipients of this letter originally knew who he was. All right, so obviously, in that sense, he didn't have to say his name. They knew who he was. And even, uh, you know, this end of the book, you see more personal references brought in. All that's left out in the first part of the book, laying out about who Jesus Christ is and what he's done and so on. But so in, in this portion here, this last part of chapter 10, we see this, this transition from the doctrinal presentation about Christ and his, his person, his priesthood, to living a life of faith, to the principle of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we've looked at some of these verses, but let me just reiterate some of this as we jump back in here. Verse 19 through 25 go together, 26 through 31 go together in a paragraph, 32 through 39, um, but we're going to try to cover these all here this morning, uh, albeit Somewhat briefly, but we're going to try to cover these, all right? So you see three, remember in the first part here, 19 through 25, you see three exhortations that are giving, given. And these are, again, it's important, and this is part of a transition here, uh, as well as there's a, a, an exact warning in, in the next several verses here, uh, that fourth warning passage, and then just, again, exhortations that are giving. But in... Verses uh, 19 through 25, you see three main exhortations given. You remember what those are? They're easy to see because they all start with the words, let us. All right? I mean, let me just say, when something's worded this way, you could, you could in the New Testament, you can pretty much always say this is an exhortation. The writer is exhorting us to participate in something. All right? Now, that doesn't mean it's necessarily less important than a a specific command, okay, but it's just worded different, all right? It is obviously something we are to be doing. It's important, all right? And in this passage, he says, there's three exhortations that are given. What are they? You can see them. All right? I think I heard them all there, all right? Yeah, we're to draw near. Now, again, the, the first two verses here, you see just there's modif things that modify these three exhortations. But he says, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of the Lord Jesus. That's what he's laid out in the previous chapters. That Christ has, he's made the way. 
accessible to God. Now, there's only one way that that is accessible for us, and that's through faith in Him, but He's made the way accessible. And so that's the whole point. Because that, and because we have this high priest, all right, he says in verse 21, over the house of God, he says, let us draw near. In other words, come to or approach God. That's the whole point. Approach God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Very similar to the statement that was made back in chapter, at the end of chapter 4, about coming boldly under the throne of grace, that we may find uh, grace to help in the time of need. All right, uh, very similar idea, uh, but he's really driving it home here, saying because of all that Christ has done, we ought to, all right? I mean, that's kind of the way he's wording it. We ought to go ahead and approach him. There's no reason not to. And the fact is, God wants us to. He invites us to. He doesn't word it from that angle here, but much in the New Testament makes that clear. God desires for all men to come to him, not just a few. He desires for all. Now, the reality is in the scope of the world's population and the, you know, the population of history, whatever all that is, I mean, Jesus said, few there are that are saved. I mean, that's a, that's a relative term, all right? That's sad because of what Jesus has done. Jesus desires to save all men. God desires to save all men. And Jesus did what he did so that all men could be saved. But sadly, seemingly, most aren't. Many miss out. All right? And involved in the scope of the people that he's writing to in obviously a congregation here, directly, with this seems that it would be made up at least primarily by Jewish people who had gotten saved, all but although in the mix of all those people, there quite likely is some that really weren't saved. Now, and, and that's one of the reasons for these warnings that are issued throughout the book of Hebrews. And the fourth warning, you read it this morning, we'll get to those verses here in just a, just a few moments. It, it is, I think, perhaps the most serious of the warnings. I mean, it's really a serious thing uh, that he's talking about to be careful that we don't miss salvation. Sadly, I believe that because the gospel is corrupted in, in religious circles today, and, and it always has been since the first century on, uh, I mean, but there's a lot of corruption of the gospel through various means, sometimes not necessarily intentional by some people, I'm sure, but in many ways it is intentional because there is someone behind that that is definitely trying to, you know, corrupt everything he can. Uh, and and he, he loves it when, when the gospel is watered down or corrupted or whatever. And so it behooves us to be very careful and serious concerning those things. And, and, and part of these warnings, the emphasis of part of these warnings is that each of us be careful, you know, not just with the gospel, but in our response to the gospel, that we have a sincere uh, uh, response to it, and that we genuinely are saved. Um, and and the, the purpose of reiterating these is not to get people to question necessarily their salvation, all right, but 
to drive home the point, it is serious. And in many ways, I think it is not taken nearly as serious as it should be today. Um, anyway, I, I, I had a, I almost went down a rabbit trail, but I'm going to wait <laughs> this morning. I listened, to, I heard this podcast, somebody gave me a name of some guy to check out anyway, and I was doing that, and I got really irritated listening to this one because he was basically making fun of people that were trying to, uh, at least that's how I took it. Um, uh, in all reality, I had to uh, be honest and say I did not completely listen to the podcast because I got so irritated I just turned it off. But, um, you know, downplaying the, the seriousness of warnings concerning how people treat the gospel and so on. And it, it just really got under my skin, so I didn't keep listening to it. But anyway, um, but it is a serious matter, right? So he's, he's, he's throwing out these three exhortations very clearly here that, you know, we, we need to draw near. We should draw near, and it's not necessarily drawing near to ourselves, drawing near to each other, but it's drawing near to God here. We need to approach God through Christ, through the way that God has made, through the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's the only way possible, by the way. And he says then after this, having our hearts sprinkled and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, you remember back in, again, and here I don't think he's talking about, uh, you know, well, what he's comparing it with the Old Testament. You remember the priest could only, and only the priest could, could do what they did, all right? Not everybody was qualified, but the priest could only do that after they had been consecrated for that task. They had to be sprinkled and so on. They had to be washed. And then in the course of their duty, sometimes priests became defiled, all right, because of things. And they had to go through a process of being ceremonially cleansed again. Uh, but the point being is they, weren't, they did not, although they were the ones instructed to do the priestly activities, if they weren't set aside for that, they couldn't do it rightly. All right? In fact, it probably brought condemnation on them. But um, we, and, and verse, lost my place here, verse 22, the end of it, um, having our, our, our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Again, it's, it's kind of likening it to that ceremonial cleansing in the Old Testament. But here, really the idea is, if you're saved, this has happened to you. All right? You have been cleansed and you can approach God, is the idea. All right? Verse 23 says, Let us hold fast our profession of faith without wavering. It's interesting how he says that. You know, we need to, we need to confidently, confidently hold fast our profession here. Our, uh, and the idea of profession, it's our confession of allegiance, all right? And our, our confession of allegiance to Christ, all right? Uh, because, again, in that day, remember, and some of the people apparently that were involved in the original audience of Hebrews here, they had some, they may not have publicly been wavering, but in their minds, they're struggling. And people secretively, if I can say it that way, struggle all the time now. I mean, not necessarily all, I mean, it, it is true that people struggle with, okay, salvation. Do I, you know, should I really, I mean, can I, can I really cross that line and give up this, you know, old life or, or this religion or whatever it is? 
and just rely on Christ, or, I mean, even, even in personal lives of Christians. I mean, there are things that we struggle with, whether it's things of sin or, or you know, in, in times. I mean, sometimes we get in situations with trials and difficulties in our lives where it's, you know, it might seem like it's hard to trust God because it just seems like everything's caving in on us. And, you know, I mean, but there's, there's things we all struggle with, right? But we need, what he's saying is we need to draw near to God. And by the way, these would be principles that are true for, you know, good for a Christian, all right? In time of, of need or difficulty or whatever, what should you do? Draw nigh to God. Right? Go to that throne of grace, because that's where you're going to find grace. Grace is God's help that you need. I mean, that's where you're going to find it, right? So draw nigh to him, and don't let go, so to speak. And I'm not talking about the, you know, the Pentecostal holiness idea of, you know, if we hold on, we're going to be saved. But I'm talking about don't let go of your profession. Hold fast. Be firm in your faith in trusting God, trusting his word, trusting Christ. Right? And that's part of the reason of chapter 11 that we're going to see. He's giving examples of people that trusted God. And they, in the end, and, and they faced a lot of difficulties, a lot of trials, but in the end, God did exactly what he promised in their lives. All right? and, and that will be true for us as well. All right, so hold fast that profession. Don't waver. And then he says, let us consider. And this is where we started into last week. Didn't quite really get to talk about this, but let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. The word consider has the idea of, of thinking about, uh, observing, uh, and so on. Um, I got some verses here that uh, maybe give us some examples in that, but considering one another, and actually I didn't write those verses down here, but um, to to think carefully about, to look at in a reflective manner, consider, contemplate, or to think carefully about, uh, to notice things. I mean, all of that would be true in this. But as believers, notice what the uh, verse 24 says. Let us consider, and then what are the next two words? One another. All right? And this means this is a reciprocal idea, something that goes back and forth. What's a reciprocating saw, for instance? All right, it's a saw that goes back and forth. It cuts that way. There's different kinds of saws, right, for different things. But it goes back and forth, all right? And a, uh, this is a reciprocal pronoun, but it, it, it's the idea that this is something we're to consider one another, all right? So in other words, this is, I'm to be considering, looking, thinking about, and so on. And think of it this way, too. In Philippians uh, 2, we're told to not, uh, can't, let not every man think about, you know, and I'm paraphrasing slightly here, his own things and the idea of just your own things, but also on the things of others, All right? Um, but we're to be considering one another. And that, that goes both ways all the time, is the idea. We're, and, and, and you can see in this context where he starts um, obviously getting into the point to where this has to be in a church setting. 
because there's no way I can honestly consider all the Christians everywhere, you know, in the world. I mean, in a general way, oh, yes, God bless everybody. <laughs> I mean, but you see what I'm saying. I mean, there has to be a, a circle of people that you have a direct involvement with and you're able to participate with and uh, to be able to consider one another. Now, here's the other thing about this, all right? Why are we to consider one another? So we know all the bad things about everybody? I mean, after you're married for a while, you learn some things about your spouse that you didn't know before you got married, right? And, I mean, that's just the way life is. Obviously, the better you get to know somebody, the more familiar you become with them, then you're going to know things about them that you wouldn't have known elsewise. But we're to consider one another for a reason. And in the verse, notice what it says. Let us consider one another for what reason? For what purpose is the idea? To provoke. Now, that sounds like kind of a negative word, doesn't it? I'm going to provoke you. Uh, I mean, you could think of the word to instigate. I mean, same idea. All right. To provoke, to instigate, but not for something bad, not trying to pick a fight. Now, there's some people in churches that they consider one another and try to provoke one another for, you know, fighting purposes or whatever. But to consider one another and provoke unto love and to good works. Some think the idea is to provoke with love and with good works. That's possible, all right? Uh, obviously, if we're going to be involved in somebody's life and provoking them, uh, then it needs to be with love and by doing good ourselves, right? But I, I do believe that the, the idea is, okay, we're to, we're to help people grow in love and good works. That's part of our responsibility as God's people, as believers. That's not always easy to do. For a number of reasons. Um, sometimes personality. Sometimes, you know, whatever. People, no, nobody's comfortable with other people knowing their faults. I mean, that's just human nature, right? That's just part of it. We want everybody to see us in the best light possible and, and so on. I mean, but every one of us has needs. Every one of us has faults of some kind. I mean, every one of us has areas in our lives where God wants us to grow. I mean, that's just the fact of it. Because as long as you're here on this earth breathing until you're in heaven with the Lord, that's going to be true for you. Now, that, that pool of things that God wants you to grow in may be smaller than it once was. And if so, that's great. Praise the Lord. But there's still a pool of needs there because none of us are completely Christ-like yet. Just think if that were true, that would be heaven on earth, right? But one day we'll be in heaven with him. But, but the point being is we're to consider one another, he says. And, then, and, and, and the purpose of that is, again, to provoke unto love and good works, to help each other grow, to help each other do right. And by the way, that's part of the purpose of a New Testament church. And it's not one of the, again, one of the uh, things that is very prominently stressed about churches. But it is something 
that's important. And by the way, in order to do that, that means you, you must get to know people. And in a way, you would have to say, that means you also have to be vulnerable for people getting to know you. But that also demands that we are patient and kind and loving with each other, or the result will be chaos in a fight, right? I mean, it's, it's kind of like in a family. I mean, you in your family, you know things about each other that others don't. I mean, but in a church, we ought to, we ought to know things. Not, I'm not saying that we're trying to learn everybody's secrets, but I mean, the point is, but we're to, we're to learn things about each other so that we can help each other help each other grow, help each other become Christ-like. I mean, that's ultimately, that's one of the big responsibilities of a church, right? We're to consider and to provoke. As we consider, we're to do this provoking one another. Notice provoking, all right? It's, it's, this, is all, this is what's happening in our considering. We're provoking unto love and good works, all right? And then verse 25, all right? This is a, an important verse. And I'm going to have to hurry here, but he says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. All right, again, I think a lot of times this verse is taken out of context and used in various ways. There certainly are principles here, but in the context, okay, keep this in mind, this is modifying the, the, the statement, let us consider one another. And provoke unto love, provoking one another, <laughs> provoking one another unto love, and provoke unto love and good works, not forsaking. So, in other words, this goes along with that, but it's it's um, it's it's part of that whole thing. All right. In other words, if we're going to do that, that means we have to assemble, we have to be around each other. All right. Um, does this apply to attending church? Yes, that's part of it, okay? I've, I've heard preachers use it, and, and, you know, like that's all the verse has to do with. It's far more than just attending church, okay? That's, that's my point I'm making. That's involved in it, but it's far more than that in reality. It's, it's we're to have, we're not to be forsaking, looking down on the assembling of ourselves, or in the sense even, think of this, as uh, those that are in that wavering state. Not sure if they're committing, all right? In that sense, it, they could make the decision and forsake and go away, all right? Which in that instance, that would probably be a demonstration that they really weren't saved. But uh, anyway, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. So there were some people that were in that boat already, but... Exhorting. So in other words, you see the word but here? This is showing a strong contrast. So the opposite in this verse, anyway, of forsaking the assembling is the exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So we need to be around each other. We need to be involved with each other. We need to love each other. And again, that involves, it's a, always a two-way street. It's helping one another. And again, that's not always easy to do. And in reality, I mean, probably, I, I don't know if it's a gender thing. You know, men are more 
uh, harder. You know, women seem to be able to share things with each other easier. I don't know. But, you know, part of that is pride and, and various things, and maybe men struggle with that more than women. But, uh, you know, in our personalities, it's not always the easy thing to do. But it's part of our responsibility as a Christian. That's the point. And that's how we need to look at it as. All right, we're to be exhorting one another. We're to be involved with one another, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, but exhorting one another. All right, not leaving behind, forsaking, abandoning is the idea. And I think that the, uh, the KJV translators, they translate it, I think, in the way that, that comes across not just an action, but the attitude involved with it as well, which is, I think, important here. All right, not forsaking, but we're to be exhorting one, one another. And then notice he says, so much the more as you see the day approaching. It's even more and more and more important the closer that the day gets. And it would seem obvious that the day referred to here is the coming again of the Lord Jesus. All right. As that day grows closer, it's more important and more imperative that we are exhorting one another, that we're helping one another, that we're doing what we're supposed to be doing together and helping one another. But then, of course, I believe that bleeds over into, obviously, our responsibility to those out there as well. And together, we're to be reaching this world. That's the responsibility that God has given us. Now... Um, Let's, uh, let's move on a little bit here with this. Notice then, so much the more as you see the day approaching. And then notice verse 26 and the wording here. It gets real serious all of a sudden. Again, not that what has been said is not serious, but notice how serious this gets. All right, And this is specifically that fourth warning passage now, verses 26 through 31. For if, for if we sin willfully... After that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall, which shall excuse me, devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sorer punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, notice that, and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. And then notice this statement in verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, if there's not some serious verses in the Bible there, I don't know what are. I mean, but again, this is, this is in keeping with the other warning passages that have been stated before, right? And it's almost like uh, in the first three, they got more severe as they went on. And then you have this one, which I think goes hand in hand with the same idea that was in the third warning passage in chapter 6. But it's just, I mean, this is some serious words here. 
If we sin willfully, now again, let me, let me put this in this context, okay, and try to do this quick. I don't believe this is talking about a Christian committing a sin in his or her life, okay? Uh, for one thing, if you're saved, all your sins are forgiven. Sins you haven't even committed yet, they're forgiven in Christ. You can't be saved if your sins aren't forgiven, all right? Now, 1 John 1, 9, you know, talks about if we confess our sins, then he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's talking about practical living in our Christian lives. That's not talking about your standing before God as far as a Christian. If you're saved, you are saved. It doesn't, and I hate to word it this way, but it doesn't matter what you do. If you're saved, you're saved. Okay? Now, that's not the same thing as somebody said, well, that means if, if you can just get saved and do whatever you want and everything's okay. That's not the attitude. That's not the point. But what I'm saying is if a saved person has a standing before God that is secure and will not change, but, and it's based on what Christ has done. It's not based on your living. It's based on what Christ has done. Now, there's another side of that, and that is as we are living our lives here on this earth, until either we die or the rapture happens, whichever occurs first in our particular instance. But as we live our lives here, we have a responsibility before God to be obeying and to be living in fellowship. And we should want that, of course. He wants that. And when we sin as a believer, it affects that fellowship with God. It does not affect your standing in Christ, but it affects your, your fellowship as a child of God here on this earth. And we'll see when we get to chapter 12, by the way, what God does for His children in this life. That's that chastening part, all right? And if you're saved, let me just say, I, I, you know, this might sound terrible, but I believe it's possible for a saved person to commit any sin that anybody else can commit. But the point is, when a believer sins, God deals with them. That doesn't mean as soon as they sin, boom, you know, they're out of the picture or they're on their back. I mean, that can happen, okay, but, but the point is, God, my experience, and I believe it's Bible principle as well, God generally... He starts with something, and, if, you know, and then he'll get that a little more serious and turns up the heat more and more. But a true child of God, I believe, will have a change of heart and repent. All right? Versus an unsaved person, they can persist in their sin and not be bothered by it. But our sin, what I'm getting at is our sin as a Christian, sins we commit as a Christian, affect our lives, our fellowship with God now. They affect our testimony. They affect other people. They affect, it, it's not that there's no consequence to it. That's absolutely not the point. There are a lot, there's consequences to every sin. But they don't affect our standing before God, our relationship in Christ. Because if you're saved, God has forgiven all of your sins. And he doesn't unforgive sin. <laughs> he doesn't take back what he's done, you know, all right? Um, and some people have a hard time understanding that. And that but the point is, again, sin, if, as a believer, your sin in your life, when you commit a sin, it affects your life. It affects other people's. It affects things 
but it doesn't affect your standing before God. That's a, that's a, a judicial act of God whereby he justifies a sinner. And there's nobody that deserves it because we're all sinners. A person who's committed just one sin one time in their lives is still guilty and deserves hell. And I don't think anybody, any of us, can probably honestly claim that's all that's ever happened. All right? But the point being, all right, what he's warning about here, let me focus back. The point is, he's not talking about, like, if you're a Christian and you know, oh, I shouldn't do this, but you do it anyway. All right? That's not the picture here. The picture here in sinning willfully is the idea of rejecting Christ. It's not drawing near to him. It's not coming to Christ. Remember the whole point back in the warning in chapter 6? Right, chapter 3 warned about missing God's rest through unbelief. Chapter 6 went about it a little different way and said, but if a person does this, this, and this, and this, it's impossible to renew them to repentance because there's nothing else that can be done. And I believe that's the same scenario that's in the picture here. A person who, re, who willfully, because notice it says, after that we receive the knowledge of the truth, right? And it, it talks about being illuminated and so on. I mean, the point being here, when a person says no to Christ, that can't be overlooked. There's, there's uh, the only way to have forgiveness is saying yes to Christ, all right? Uh, the person that comes, they might toy around with and, and, you know, entertain the thoughts and whatever, but I mean, when a person rejects Christ, there's nothing else, there's no other hope. There's nothing else that can be done. So if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. There's nothing else that can be done. But a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sorer punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy, who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God. The, how, the more sorer punishment, what do you think that's talking about? It's talking about hell, right? Uh, because if a, if a person was condemned under the Mosaic law and they were stoned or whatever, I mean, what is worse than physical death? It's the second death, as Revelation puts it, right? I mean, uh, you know, hell, all right? That's more, much sore punishment, all right? He says, but he should be thought, shall he be thought where he hath trodden underfoot the Son of God? Again, the idea is, these are, this is a person who has, they've come to the point of having knowledge and there's, there's light there and, and so on, but they turn from Christ. They don't embrace him. They don't come to God through Christ. Instead, for whatever reason, and there's many reasons that, that affect people in their decisions on this. But they turn from him. And what the warning is laying out is, you know what, there's an, there's an, uh, an alternative here. There's Christ, or you can reject him and you'll get the fruits of your own sin. 
That's, that's the whole point. It's one or the other. And, there's, and the, the thing is, the Bible makes it clear there's no third option. There's not another alternative. It's Christ or hell. Christ or your own path. You know, as, as Jesus put it there in the Sermon on the Mount, that broad way. Man, most people are there because, he says, the narrow way, the straight gate and narrow way are hard to find, number one. And then some people, maybe they see it. They might find it, so to speak, but they don't go through it because they realize it's difficult. It's too difficult for them. People struggle with, can I, can I turn to, if I turn to Christ, that means I'm giving up whatever it is. And that's different for everybody, probably. But everybody makes a choice. Everybody who's come to Christ has had to have turned their back on something. But whatever else, whatever, whatever that other thing is, for whoever it is, this, the results are the same. That broad way leads to what, Jesus said, destruction. And as the writer Hebrews says, a much sorer punishment than anything that was afforded in Moses' law. I mean, there were some severe sounding punishments in the Mosaic law, right? But none of those punishments laid out there involved hell. I mean, God's the only one that can mete out that punishment. But these people are people that have trodden underfoot the Son of God. They've counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he, ha- he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. I mean, this is severe-sounding language. All right? For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me. And by the way, no one's going to get anything over on God. I mean, they're not going to escape the vengeance of God. There's no way they're going to get, you know, they might get in, uh, you know, they might have all the money in the world. They're not going to be able to buy their way out of judgment from God. Whatever it is, okay, they're, they're, they're not going to escape it. And he says, the Lord shall judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hand of the living God. Now that Lord judging his people is true for believers. God does judge believers. And by the way, every believer one day will stand before God and will give an account to him for our service and our works here. It's not answering for sin and salvation. That's taken care of in Christ. But that in itself, that might, not, that might sound like, oh, whew. but the Apostle Paul talked about that as being a fearful thing in 2 Corinthians uh, I'm trying to think the passage. Or 2 Corinthians 5. He uses this wording, and I've got to hurry here. Um, in verse 11, he says, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. He's just talked about the judgment seat of Christ in verse 10. I mean, if you think about it that way, the Apostle Paul, I mean, we all would hold him up as pretty good example, I'm sure. But he said, thinking about the judgment seat of Christ brings terror in his mind. And and what he's, I think the main terrifying thing to him would be letting the Lord down. 
I mean, anyway, we, we, we can't talk about all that right now. But verse 32 through 39, let me lay this out real quick, and then we'll, we'll just stop here because this, this in, introduces the door to the next chapter. But basically, in these verses, there's an exhortation. He's just issued this severe warning, all right, with, again, there's an exhortation here, come to Christ, come to Christ, come to Christ, or else... But then he says in verse 32, he refers to some things. Obviously, these people had experienced some hardship, some trials, some difficulty uh, that were probably getting them down, if I can just word it that way. And there's none of us that are exempt from that, for sure. But that's partly why the preceding part there that we saw is important, that we're to be helping each other. We're to be helping each other, looking out for one another, helping motivate and provoke one another to, to love and good works um, and being faithful and, and so on. But he, he talks of this in these verses, obviously they had had some difficulties and so on, but basically the gist of these verses, I believe, is he's saying, okay, what you need to do, I'm exhorting you to remember the former days. He uses that phrase there. Look back. And think about what God has done in the past. You realize that that principle is, is seen many times in the Bible. And if we look back and see what God has done, that helps, gives, <laughs> helps give us the motivation and sometimes encouragement for the present and to face the future. Because it reminds us that God can be trusted. And... When we look back and see, you know, God did this. Sometimes I think in our lives we just need to do that. And, and I'll just be honest right now. It's been a long time since I really thought about that. Way too long and thought about it. I mean, if I look back at my life, I can see how God did this and God did this and God did this. I mean, that is encouraging to think about. Especially if, you're, if you were in a time in your life and you're thinking, man, just... Is there any reason, you know, and any good of this and whatever? I mean... Uh, but think back and look at the good that God has done and what God has done, the prayers that God answered. And, you know, there's, there's a reason for whatever it is that you're facing right now. I can't tell you the exact reason, and maybe nobody else can, but in a general sense, obviously, it's to help us grow, okay? To produce patience, endurance in our lives. And, and in, that, in, in that happening, that helps others by the way, but he's exhorting them. Let me just say, he's exhorting them here to look back, see what God has done, because when you do that, that helps build your faith for today and the future. And then after this passage, that's when he gets, back, he gets into looking back at all those Old Testament characters that did this by faith. Abel offered to God. By faith, Noah built the ark. I mean, think about that. Now, he just, I mean, he just gives a general presentation of all them things, but if you stopped and considered each one of those and what God, I mean, those people face some difficult places and, and probably seeming unsurmountable difficulties, but yet they trusted God and God worked and God blessed because they trusted him. That's, that's kind of the point in the context of where, where he's at, what he's getting to in this. So we'll, we'll jump more into that next time there. But uh, let's go ahead and pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the Lord Jesus. And I, I do pray that you would help, help me to be what I ought to be. 
Lord, number one, so I could please you, but number one, so I could serve you, and, and Lord, so I could be a help to others. And uh, Lord, help me help each of us to be considering one another so that we can help each other as we ought. We ask these things in Jesus' name. For his sake we pray, amen.